0: Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal to help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey everybody, and welcome to episode 446 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, it's a pretty exciting day around here. It is launch day for my brand new book as I record it. I know you're thinking, Carrie, that was like two weeks ago. Yep, it was, but you know, we kind of work ahead. This isn't done in real time. But anyway, I'm really, really thankful. Just wanted to say, uh, exciting to see this day finally come. My new book, At Your Best, is In the World. It's been in the world for two weeks as you hear this, but uh, it goes in today as I record this. And uh, just want to say thank you to everybody who made this such a great journey. We can't believe the number of people who pre-ordered the book. Uh, A lot of you are starting to share your stories already as you get access to it. Some of you got early access and it's just a thrill. So just want to say thank you. Uh, I do more than just podcasting. Uh, I write books as well. So if you haven't got a copy of At Your Best, you can pick that up today. We are going to do a segment later on where you can ask me anything about productivity. We're going to talk to Karen and Karen's got the challenge of trying to do it all in her company. And um, well, my guest today is Juliette Funt, and we want to thank our podcast partners, ProMedia Fire. You can experience for free two weeks of live training on how to grow online by going to socialmediachallenge.com and by our friends at Belay. Get your copy of their free resource, Five Blind Spots That Steal Your Attention, by texting my name, Carrie to 55123. Juliet Funt is an expert in productivity, and we are going to talk about How even the best leaders give in to time thieves what the hidden cost of busyness is and how to add white space to your work, which is such a valuable concept. And we're doing that because, well, September's productivity month. And I'm trying to interview some of the best experts in the world on productivity. Because whether you buy a copy of At Your Best or not, I want you to become better at productivity, to work less, accomplish more, and to start to thrive in life and leadership, which is what we're all about. Juliet is a regular feature in top global media outlets, including Forbes and Fast Company. Juliet's a renowned keynote speaker and a tough love advisor to uh, Fortune 500 companies. She's the founder and CEO of a boutique efficiency firm, Whitespace at Work. And she's an evangelist at uh, freeing the potential for companies by unburdening them from busy work. She's consulted with companies like Spotify, National Geographic, Anthem, Vans, Abbott, Costco, Pepsi, Nike, Wells Fargo, Sephora, Cisco, and ESPN. And you can find her at whitespaceatwork.com. So super excited for this conversation. You're going to enjoy it. If you do stacked meetings, like back-to-back meetings, you can't miss this conversation with Juliet Funt. Hey, calling all church not-for-profit and business leaders, are you looking to maximize your digital growth and impact this coming holiday season? Yep, it's almost here. You got to start thinking now. If so, then you want to be part of Fire's social media challenge starting in October. The social media challenge is absolutely free. It includes tips and tactics, currently working on social media because it changes all the time, how to decide what and when to post, the five-step digital engagement framework that can accelerate your growth. How to create a 30-day content calendar. We'll use that around here. And the free beta use of a social media software never released to the public until now. So you want all that for free? Experience it by going to socialmediachallenge.com. That's socialmediachallenge.com. And then let's talk about busyness because that is what we're talking about. Specifically, how busyness has become an aspirational badge of honor. Think about it. Saturday morning, you're still doing emails at your daughter's soccer game. Tuesday night, you're on a call with a client about a new initiative at your son's piano recital. Friday night, you went out to celebrate your anniversary, but you were so distracted about thoughts at work, you don't even remember what you ate. Monday afternoon, you took time to plan and prepare for the week ahead while your family went for a bike ride. Now, does that sound familiar? Let's get uncomfortably honest. How long has it been since you were fully present? Well, that can end today because our friends at Belay want to help. Belay is an incredible organization I've used that is revolutionizing productivity with their virtual assistants, bookkeeping, and social media strategist services for growing organizations, and they know busy all too well. They can help you reject that cult of preoccupation to, uh, well, get busyness out of your life. You can get a free copy of their resource, Five Blind Spots That Steal Your Attention by texting Carrie C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. That's Carrie to 55123. So, anyway, on this very exciting day, again, thank you, everybody. Let's dive into my conversation with Juliet Funt. Juliet, welcome to the podcast. It's been a long time coming.
1: It has been. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, we have tried before, haven't we? And technology and global power failures and what else (laughs) all got in the way. (laughs) I don't know what happened last time, but I'm glad to have you on the show. So, Uh, you got a brand new book. It's called A Minute to Think. It's a fantastic book. Um, You talk about the price of busyness, something we're both Mm -hmm. really passionate about. Um, What is the price of busyness? Let's talk about it in your own life and leadership, because for a lot of us, it comes out of a pain point. That's where At Your Best comes from. It's like, I burned out 15 years ago. Here's some things that will help you not do it. What was the price of busyness in your life, and was that something you struggled with, and How?
1: Yeah, we will talk about the work, but life is more important than work. So I always Mm -hmm. start there if I have the liberty to the the fun thing about staying deep in this work for me is that I always identify so deeply with every story and every person because I'm if I was untended in my raw state, I'd be the busiest person you ever met because (laughs) I am just the workaholic uh, energizer bunny personality type, very frail to technologies, addiction and lore. And so Mm. I would be a person who just never stops moving if I kind of didn't have my own purse in my, my own book in my purse, (laughs) just (laughs) reminding me over and over and over. So that there, there is a price that is constant. It's not really the, I was lost and then I was found story. It's, it's the, it's the daily reprieve. Mm. And the daily reprieve of busyness comes from first remembering that the price on my life is very big. And I was, for mm. some reason, an image came to me this morning that I've never said on a podcast before. But I was lucky enough once to take a tour of the Palace of Versailles in France. Oh wow! And it was—it's—it's it's just room after room after room of the most spectacular artwork and gold and statues that you've ever seen in your life. And but. It's Versailles. So it is really crowded and there are a thousand tourists behind you pushing you through. And then in front of you, the guide is going, we're walking, we're walking, we're walking, we're walking. <laughs> and all you want to do is slow down for to, to just savor the visual pleasure and the awe and to stare at this level of beauty and you're not allowed to. And to me, that's what busyness does to me. It's just pulling me from the front and pushing me from behind. And I'm missing my life. I'm missing my children. I'm missing serendipity. I'm missing sensory experience in the day where a bird sings or I'm baking banana bread and I stand outside the oven and I smell it for a minute. I'm missing all of that because it's just we're walking, we're walking, we're walking. And that price, if I had to kind of double down on one reason or another that I do this work, I'm I'm extremely passionate about how busyness at work costs us a lot. But it's the home piece, the life piece that we are so, you know, d- dedicated to change for people. And, and that's that's what I see in it.
0: I love that metaphor. Have not been to Versailles, but we did the Turbo Tour of the Louvre. And that is not the yeah. same as being able to, to see it. Right. That was... Uh, Uh, a different story for another day. Um, You also argue, and I think this is true in our culture, that busyness is a false god, Juliet, and Mm. there is a hidden cost to it. What is the hidden cost of busyness in leadership? Uh,
1: Seven answers at once are coming. So there's neurological cost. Our frontal lobes are too tired to do good work or be creative. We continually deplete them. We never replenish them. Enormous cost. There's the financial cost which we talk a lot about because we have a quantification process with our clients where we take all those busy touch points, the stupid email and the CCs and the unnecessary reports and the decks that nobody reads. And we actually put a dollar value to them. And we see that companies spend about a million dollars annually for every 50 people on unnecessary work. That's Whoa. that's like the stepping on a Lego level pain cost that hopefully leaders Leaders should just be sitting up right now, going, "Uh-oh, I got to do." I some know math you've got right seven. Can you
0: drill down on that a little bit because that sounds really important?
1: Yeah. The so, if you let's say you hire a COO for your company right. and you hire Hannah, she's a superstar. You're going to put her to work. You're going to pay her a hundred thousand dollars a year, and you're going to pay her a hundred thousand dollars a year whether scenario A, she wins an industry award, revolutionizes your business, and makes the shareholders do the macarena on the conference table. Or scenario B, she spends seven hours a day in stupid Zoom meetings playing hangman and then deleting CC emails for four hours a day. Whichever one you do, she gets $100,000 a year. So it's
2: about
1: this, it's the ratio of high-value work to low-value work that leaders need to take control of. And they can absolutely take control of it once they start realizing that busyness lures you into thinking that all of its touch points have value. If it didn't trick you in this way, it would have short tenure and it knows it would be kicked out. So it keeps making us think that all these things are valuable, but they're not. They don't add to top line. They don't add to bottom line. They don't add to people finding meaning in the daily tasks of work and they cost a lot.
0: Hmm. You couple others, you don't have to go through all seven, but you're, you're already, I don't know if it's, uh, litter- <laughs> I don't know if it's literally seven.
1: Uh, I think that I love when we have a leadership audience, because you can go yeah. into talking about legacy and yeah. legacy is a passion of mine to think about, can you as a leader make the space? Can you quell busyness enough to go forward in the movie of your life to the moment when you're looking back on the legacy that you created? Can you design that with effort and purpose and intentionality instead of accidentally arriving there at your retirement party? And I think that leaders who quell busyness and make more space have the ability to write their legacy like a story they're writing with a pen. But without it, we have an enormous cost that we end up accidentally looking back on our track record because we didn't have time to design it. And I think maybe, of, I mean, yes, the financial one is the one that gets a lot of buzz in bigger corporations, but I think this is a big one for leaders.
0: I think it is too. Does opportunity cost play into that at all? I'll give you a little uh, sample from my life a couple of weeks ago. We held off on all my 2022 calendar until the end of August. So end of August rolls around. Mm-hmm. Instead of me and my assistant deciding this year, I pulled in uh, two of my top leaders in the company, my podcast manager and the one in charge of marketing and um, finance. And we just sat down Mm -hmm. and we looked at everything thoughtfully, prayerfully. There were events I really wanted to do that I ended up Mm -hmm. saying no to. And we had a really interesting conversation on opportunity cost. Because if Mm -hmm. I'm flying from Orlando to LA to Dallas, you know, all in a week, those are really good events. I'm really excited for that. And yet, That means that week is spoken for. I can't move the company forward. I'm responding to other people's invitations, not the priorities that perhaps are most important. It means I'm not home with my wife. It means all those things. To to what extent does opportunity cost factor into our busyness when we think about the the price?
1: Enormously, enormously. Because creative work, strategic work, meaningful work, High value work. It's all standing outside the door waiting for CC email to vacate some space.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's, it's ridiculous. It's the things that make people wake up in the morning and want to have a job. Matthew Fox was um, a writer who wrote a book, The Meaning of Work, many, many years ago. And he said, people want work where they can serve others with their labor and dance their dance. hmm and if if you want work to feel like that, filled with service and dancing, you have to get stuff out of the way to clear a platform for that work to step up. And that is, by the way, the only kind of work that excites the younger people, the Gen Zs and the millennials. They mm-hmm. want meaning and service. It's the only kind of work that differentiates you because it's where you have creative breakthroughs. So I think it's enormous. And honestly, between mm. you and me, I mean, I know we're both together in this mission of solving this and our books are so similar. And I think that uh, it just baffles me that leaders can still be tolerating this. It just baffles me that even after the exhaustion and the burnout and the COVID impact, that there's some penny that still isn't dropping. Maybe you and I need to roll our sleeves up and you know, double, do some double time together. But yeah. what is it that is making that Complacency sticky, and why doesn't it just shift? It's it's uh, fascinating to me.
0: Well, and as you're you're you've hinted at, we're both speaking to ourselves. You're carrying your book in your purse. I'm carrying mine yeah. uh, with me because I know that I am very tempted to say yes still, and it is a, it is a constant battle. So. What I love about your your book, and it's a it's a concept that that I think is so helpful. You talk a lot about white space. What is white space? Mm.
1: White space uh, came as a name from looking at white spaces on an unscheduled paper calendar, mm. and realizing that when a day had white on it, literal white, that all sorts of magical possibilities were going to be found in the way that that day could unfold. Now it has come to mean, it has different meanings in sales. It means untapped market share in, uh, there's a graphics design version, which is actually the white on the page.
2: Hmm. We
1: define white space as time with no assignment.
2: Hmm.
1: It is any period of time that is at liberty for you to improvise with it. And it can be 30 seconds to take a breath. It can be an hour to plan your business, it can be anywhere in the middle. It can be a second and a half before you answer a question instead of just diving in. But those white spaces, the literal moments of unscheduled time when they're interlaced through the day, make everything different. And the foundational metaphor to really think about I don't know if you're flipping to the beginning of the book, but it's really am, the I'm building of fire. Yeah. Oh, the diagrams. But we keep can going. show those too. The building of fire is really the foundational metaphor that helps people grasp this. So I'm a city girl. I grew up in Manhattan, so I know how to hail a cab and get good souvlaki, but I do not know outdoorsy things like building a fire. So I had to have someone teach me once, how do you build a good fire? And it turns out that ingredients are very important. You want to have all the right stuff. But if you pack all that stuff together in the wrong way, that no matter what you do with your beautiful wood and your dried pine needles, the fire will never ignite if you forget one critical ingredient, and that is the space. The space in between where the oxygen fuels all of that beautiful, it turns a spark into a blaze. And so we are the same. And this is the metaphor. We need that oxygenating room in between in order to do everything at work and at life better.
0: You're so right. I was terrible at building fires, too. I learned rather recently in my 50s, I'm embarrassed to say. And the key is log cabin, log cabin, Google it. It's the way to go. But what that is, is exactly it. It is, it is white space. It is space between the logs, space between the sticks, space between the kindling. So that it gets lots of airflow and oxygen in, and then you're off to the races. So for those of you watching on YouTube, this is really fascinating, page 2021. You can see a typical day with no breaks, right? You're going in 30-minute meeting to one-hour meeting to lunch to this, to that. You barely have time to go to the bathroom. You barely have time to breathe. Mm. And we've all lived that life. I have lived that life in the past. I wouldn't recommend it. And you're recommending something with space, like these pauses between everything. Can you un- right. and that is something I adopted years ago, where I would tell my assistant, "I'm like I cannot do back to back to back meetings. It's like kill me now." Or if they're on the mm-hmm. calendar, I need to finish this one hour meeting at 50 minutes so I can get up, relax, think, grab a cup of <laughs> coffee or something, use the bathroom, and even just sit there for a moment and process what is underneath right. that. What 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 is that that. And so many leaders don't do that. They're just, I stack my meetings and I'm busy all the time and I'm always going. Is that a sign of
1: weakness? Oh, it's a sign of intelligence to do that. We have a very cardinal rule. We say never let the colors touch. So Mm. on your meeting, if the colors are touching, you're in trouble. It means that you're going from one meeting, which you have not had time to process or take a note on or Take your notes and put them into your your uh, you know note sheet or whatever you do. You haven't also had time to rest, recuperate, re- replenish the frontal lobe, and you haven't had time to plan. You haven't had time to now turn your attention to the next meeting and say, "Who is this human being? What did they need last time? How did I do? What do they want? What kind of vibe do I need to get into to to resonate with them?" All those things. Looking back, recuperation, and looking forward can't happen if the colors are touching. So that is a foundational part of what we believe is necessary. And especially now, especially on Zoom, we'll keep coming back to this, that it's just not possible for human beings to keep going from, especially in a digital realm, meeting to meeting to meeting.
0: I often do two podcast interviews on a Wednesday. Here we are on a Wednesday doing this podcast interview. I always book them with about a half hour minimum between episodes. Mm. And often if I can, I will take a 10 minute nap or at least lie down. Because I feel like that's a that's a brain reset for me. Oh, Just had yeah. a wonderful conversation. Is there a minimum you said, you know, one second to breathe or 2 minutes to, you know, walk outside if you were writing a prescription and you're Mm. the time management doctor, what would you say is a minimum pause between meetings?
1: Between meetings specifically, I'd love to see 10 minutes. Mm. If I were writing a prescription, 15 is better. But if you're doing the 20, it's either going to be 20s or 50s. So you have to be realistic about, it's either going to be probably 20 or 50, probably it's going to be 25 or 50. Maybe you get 20, 45, if you're in a very evolved culture but just start with not zero. <laughs> or, you know, how about starting with anything other than you're literally pushing the notes away from the last meeting while scrambling to remember who even is the person who's already in your waiting room. Let's just start right. with that and then, and then move up from there.
0: What is the brain science under that? I know you've got some brain science in here, Juliet. what What is happening in your mind when you're stacking stuff with no white space?
1: Yes. The frontal lobe, which is sort of the brain's executive center, is becoming progressively more depleted. And the only known way to replenish, that's like the the c-suite of your body, the only way to give them more give it more clarity again and make it work at full capacity is to give it a break hmm. it's the only way and 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 there is this shame around rest in our professional culture that i would really like to be the champion against we hide around the corner like a smoker if we want to take a breath or close our eyes or reboot in any way But we don't go to the gym and do 450 curls in a row without a rest. We do 15 reps and then we take a rest. And then we do, because we know that our body needs that and we just forget that our mind does. So when we give it that time, it replenishes. But then also amazing things happen. If you, people are always asking me if the pause is empty time. Is it just, you know, nothingness? It's never, it's never nothingness. Because if you took an MRI scan of the brain during what appears to be a pause, you would actually see brightly colored active motion in the default neural network, in the places where memory and insight and creativity live. Hmm. The brain needs time to cook things that we absolutely do not give it. And that's, of course, the classic example of I get ideas in the shower.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, that's super helpful to know. So this is not something like even if you're a super driven, high capacity executive that you can just power through. And even if you can do it, if you can do it day after day, year after year, your argument is you're missing out, right? That you're not tapping into your potential. Did I get that right?
1: I'm sure that there are people out there who have some magical ability to just continue to drive without thought or rest and produce amazing things. I know that Mm. they exist, but I just don't think it's a good recommendation for anybody who's not that particular unique superstar. All sorts of things happen when interlaced space is part of the day. Yes, we are more creative. We're more thoughtful. We're more strategic. We're more replenished. But how about we're also more connected as a team and we can notice each other and we're also kinder mm. because when that selfish, rough part of us comes out because stress is smushing around, like, you know, it's finding its new place mm-hmm. in our body, it, it's because we're so depleted. It's because we yeah. can't get back to that kinder center because we can't just feed ourselves first. And there, so there's so many, there's the, the big reasons and then the tiny reasons and then these beautiful sort of capillary reasons where it's just better. It's just better. Hmm.
0: Um, It's not a big section, but you talk about negativity bias and what that does to the brain. Mm. Can you talk about how negativity bias impacts leaders?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. The negativity bias is the tendency to look toward the negative. It's this it swooping where the mind focuses on the worst thing. That's the, you have six people on your Zoom call, you're presenting, six, five of them are going, this is great, and visually <laughs> nodding and smiling. There's one dude scowling and all you can see is him. And that's, that's the negativity leaning. And if you don't have a gratitude practice or a celebration practice as part of your work, you're always going to be spending the day noticing the things that went wrong. Mm. It's, you're, it's a leader's job to be scanning for problems, mistakes, what can I fix, but you don't want to live there all the time. You want to have some containers. I have containers personally where in the morning I write three things I'm grateful for and three things that were a win in my business. And if mm-hmm. I don't have a way of putting those on paper, I'll just focus on the things that didn't go the way that I wanted. We also have a practice in our company and also became now a practice with my children called Ringing the Bell that I got from a wonderful author friend named Mike Robbins. And it's when you want to say something about yourself that's really braggy and feels and somebody can unabashedly share something that is just tooting their own horn. And my children will come to me now and say, can I ring the bell and Uh say something about school or say something about friends? Because we've opened a doorway where celebration doesn't have to be oh, shucks, I didn't deserve it. And where we can really re- lean into the beauty of that.
0: Uh, that's great. You know, I did some gratitude journaling a few years ago and you reminded me, I probably need to get back to it, but you're right. Leaders can focus on the negative. So gratitude journaling is a really good way to get through it or even capturing a few things you're grateful for. Any other ideas? Because you're right. There can be Thirty five star Google reviews for your church or organization, and you find the mm-hmm. one one star review. It's like, who are they? What's yeah. their email address? I gotta blah, right, blah. Right, right. what you think about when you're falling asleep, it, right?
1: It's not just that you find that review; it's you kind of rub on it, you sit with it, and and think about it, and that's that negativity bias. I, I was just trying to remember for you where I heard this because one more popped in, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be short on the source. I hmm. think it's Freakonomics. But it was a fascinating concept called headwind-tailwind asymmetry. Have you ever heard this one?
0: Mm, have not, no.
1: Yeah, I loved this. You'll look it up. I'm pretty sure it's Freakonomics. But they talked about how we we have headwinds. We have things that are against us that we're always fighting. And we have tailwinds that are things that are pushing us forward and supporting us. And there's a natural bias in human beings to focus on the tailwinds, to have an asymmetry in our daily appreciation for the two together. So headwinds, very easy to see. It's a pandemic I can't sell. Uh, Delta is closing down our conference again. There's so many headwinds and headwinds personally too. I'm dealing with a health crisis. I'm not in the marriage that I want. Really, really tough ones, but we just don't give the same mental real estate to the tailwinds, to subtle things like I had parents that supported me. Or I went to a great college, mm. or a million people that I've forgotten have given me advice in my career that took me to where I am right now. We just don't tend to turn the the dial and t- spend as much time with the tailwinds and that's a beautiful meditation that I was playing with immediately when I heard about it is what are my tailwinds there's a lot of them and it's just way easier to focus on the headwinds headwinds are also actionable they give us ideas of things to try to do to fix them so they get way more real estate tailwinds is just is usually in the past and sometimes we don't know what to do with them
0: as a cyclist, that resonates a lot. I've had this blog post ah. I've never written, but headwinds okay. are, most cyclists would tell you they'd rather do a hill than a headwind. Headwinds are mm-hmm. really tough. But whenever I get a tailwind, first of all, your speed increases by 50%. But I just think oh. I'm a great cyclist then. I'm like, oh, look how awesome I am. It's like, no, you got a 30 kilometer an hour wind pushing you along. But you you know, you take all the credit when you don't need it.
1: You're reminding me that's the metaphor they used. Was, oh, really? Was cycling. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. You'll have to listen. I think it's a Freakonomics podcast. Well, I'm
0: a Freakonomics listener, so I'll have, to, I'll have to look up that episode. We'll list it in the show notes if we can find it, everyone. You also write about time thieves, Juliet. I'll just mm. list a few. Drive, excellence, information, and activity. Um, drill down on a couple, and how do those thieves get in the way of our time?
1: Sure. They're super important. So let me repeat them because they're tricky in the sense that they are actually all good things Hmm. that overgrow and then steal our time. So if you hear drive, excellence, information, and activity, you think, what spectacular assets for any person or company? Of course, we would want to have all those things. But when they overgrow, they have a risk. Drive becomes overdrive. Excellence becomes perfectionism. Hmm. Information becomes information overload and activity becomes just frenzy. And so we have to look at them. It's a, They're a little deep to go into all four. So let's pick one yeah, and pick then one. just walk it all the way through the process. So we'll take the thief of information. The thief of information occurs in our companies and in our personalities. It's that craving for more data, scoreboards, spreadsheets, numbers, research, Google tabs, Right. And the thief of information costs us. My favorite story about it is from a guy named Steve Martin, not that Steve Martin, but Steve Mm -hmm. Martin, who was a data scientist at Microsoft. He's in the book. He had a very um, intimate knowledge with the thief of information. He was watching his team, really realizing that there was too much information, but he hadn't really done anything about it. And then someone from the marketing department came to him and said that they needed 22 pieces of collateral for the sales team. They needed decks, spreadsheets, PDFs, infographics, and he had this gut instinct that it was too much, but he didn't say it. He complied and he began to build these things, but in uh, in each one of them, he put a note, and it wasn't in the footer or in a sneaky place where you had to really look. It was just in the middle. It said on page, I don't know, two or three of each thing, if you're actually reading this, email me and I'll send you a $50 Amazon gift card. <laughs> That's brilliant. so. He Of course, he puts out all the collateral material. Of course, nobody ever writes him for the money. And then the punchline is that when the team that ordered the materials came back to him the following year, they had an even longer list of stuff that they needed. And he was able to say, you don't need any of this. Because not only did nobody write in, <laughs> the team that asked for them when they were in their pre-production review, they also missed all of the links because they were skimming and they didn't read it. And so So that's a thief of information at its worst. It's tricking us in a million ways to do work that's unnecessary because more information always feels better. Now, each of the thieves has a correlating question that disarms it. And the question for information is, what do I truly need to know? What do I truly need to know? Truly, with the only italicized word in the entire section on the questions, truly, what do I truly need to know? And that can, of course, be applied for the we version for a team. What do we truly need to know as a team and organization? Hmm.
0: Yeah, and that leads to simplifying, right? We need to simplify mm-hmm. our lives. And you're right, because you could build a dashboard that's so complicated, you can't read half the data and you don't even know what it means. On the other hand, if you could zero in on a couple of key metrics that would really help you keep your finger on the pulse, what are some keys in your mind to simplifying our overly complicated lives? Mm.
1: One of them is a a phrase that was introduced to me years ago that means so much to me. It's just simply control or growth. Pick one. (laughs) Hmm. There's really only one that you can have with reliability over time. And so the more you abdicate control, the more you let go, the more growth you can have. Now, when I first heard this, I thought of it as growth as in top line. But I also realized that it means a lot of other things. It means my own personal growth as a leader. It means the growth of my team because they're properly empowered to take challenges and risks without me. So I love that phrase in terms of simplifying the other image that comes to me when you when you use the word is I have three teenage boys and the middle one has a very, very simple life that's easy for him because he has very few things. Hmm. And if you look at his desk, he has, uh, I, just, I was just walking by it so I should have it memorized. There's a shark's tooth, a baseball cap, an iPad. I think that's it on the desk. My youngest is a stuffed guy and he still hasn't figured out. He is sitting daily in a pile of Legos, clicky pens, d d character sheets. He's just, he's drowning and he's having a hard time. He's feeling emotionally uncentered and he doesn't know how to start sorting it. It's difficult for him. Sometimes it is just that simple that if we have less stuff and we can rewrite some of the rules of the additive nature of professional work, that we can get to a feeling of simplicity. So our mission is to teach people a reductive mindset, not reductive in some of the ways you might have heard the word, but in the mathematical sense as of, can you be constantly skimming work for what can you let go? What can you jettison? What can you reduce? What can you shrink in scope or delegate or hand off or kill entirely? This mindset is the most important pathway to simplification. And if people adopt it, they will then have space because they will have excavated it from underneath all the junk that's around them.
0: You've got an email strategy, which I'm very excited about. Can you walk us through uh, how to get out of the nightmare of email?
1: Well, it's a big nightmare. I know we're both fans of Cal Newport, who's talking mm-hmm. about not doing it at all. and and we we just just out of a curious uh, reveal, we as a team have been talking about doing a week with no internal email. just as an mm. experiment. Just to see, because he what he talks about, which I love so much, is that there are going to have to be these really creative thinking processes to potentially get out of yeah. an email life. Yeah. And it's not a simple thing. So we're thinking of starting with a, with a week, but we're not going to get there tomorrow. And Cal wouldn't say that we're going to get there tomorrow either. So we need some in the meantime strategies. And for me, it kind of boils down to two central ideas. We have to touch email less and we have to compose email better. Because touching it less means that it's less intrusive in the daily activities of our life and composing it better means that when we actually get to it, when we do have to touch it, it'll be faster, easier, and more pleasant.
0: How do you do that? And so that's how, you, how I write How do break you compose differently?
1: Well, in, in the book, we go through some pretty detailed sections. We call it clarity, brevity, and punch. Mm. To give it a very skinny version, clarity is... Is everything exactly clear in what you're saying? Are you using precise language? Brevity is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking the word count to be as tight as possible. And punch is visual. It is can you use bolding, underlining, bullets, things to help busy skimmers? Because email people don't read email, they skim email. So if you want to get busy skimmers, you have to visual stop sign, you know, stop signs and arrows pointing to the yeah. things that they should be paying attention to. So one of the most important areas there is the subject line. That's probably the real estate that most people should start with. To have a subject line that pertains to what you are currently talking about sounds so simple, but it's it's not. Because people write one more thing because they were talking to somebody earlier and then nobody right. knows what that's about. Or, or they fail to put time sensitivity in the subject line. And this is a core practice that we teach is you must tell people when something is expected, otherwise they fall prey to this hallucinated urgency everywhere where everything is needs to be done immediately by end of day, not needed till Wednesday. Uh-huh. Very, very important to put in the subject line when necessary. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. We have actually banned email between staff members. You can only do email when there's external people. Now we use Slack and Slack can easily be in-house email. So we have rules for Slack. And then we try mm-hmm. to run most things through Asana and weekly meetings. But regardless of the 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 method you adopt, I think you're right. You can die by email. You really can. Yeah. And, you know, I talked to Cal Newport about that. He actually does email. I've emailed him numerous times. Yeah. And he'll oh, respond. Yeah. It just doesn't govern his life. And, right. you know, he says, if it's working properly, you're spending 15, 20 minutes a day on it. And we've got it down to about that level for external email, which I think is really good. And your um, reply schedule, definitely. I mean, it's such a great book. It's so practical, Juliet. Okay, a little Thank bit of lightning you. round as we come into the home stretch okay. here.
2: Fine. Um,
0: not everyone's in the C-suite. You're like, great, Mm -hmm. you guys run your own companies. Good for you. You know, Carrie, you were the senior pastor. You get to call the shots. What about me? I'm in the middle. I'm at the bottom. How do you get Mm -hmm. white space when the culture around you is nuts?
2: Mm.
1: There was a graphic we didn't put in the book. And I wanted to put it in the book. And it was the 12 core principles that can change your life in the book. And then two columns. I can do by myself or I must have organizational buy-in to do this and there were only 10 there were only 10 where i can do by myself and two where i need organizational buy in wow so it is incredibly important to remember that in your own span of control dear weary exhausted sweet earnest leader who is just falling asleep at their desk while they're <laughs> listening to this that you can all you can write better subject lines you can create breaks between the meetings that you call you can take wedges and sips of white space of little moments of open time in between. You can become aware of your own thieves and begin to talk back to them. You can use simplification questions like the one example I gave you. There are so many things before you say, "Oh, the world is against me and the corporate mothership will never <laughs> let me have sanity. And it's a lot of that is true, but clean up, you know, clean up your own, sidewalk first and when you've swept with that little broom the area right outside your shop then write me and i'll tell you how to go i'll tell you how to go further
0: that's such a good answer okay what about the rest of your life right like you're only spending 40 out of 168 hours at work theoretically on average Mm -hmm. how do you get white space in your life because people leave busy work and they go into their busy life
1: yes and they bring it home on their shoes and and then it's in our living room and then it's with our (laughs) children and it's just everywhere. So it was interesting. Guy Kawasaki is a person that I have always had sort of a fun sparring relationship. In the early days of my practice, he was the guy, you described him earlier, who said, I don't take white space. I just keep driving, 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 (sighs) driving. And But he's become a bit of a convert and had me on his podcast. But he didn't grasp one piece of it, which is if you make space... It does not stay empty. We're not aspiring to a meditation practice where we're looking for gap here. If you lift the log up of a burning fire, the flames immediately lick into that space that you've created. Mm So when you make space at home, it's not sitting on a couch, two people in silence, just... (laughs) Super awkward. It's it's that, or even when you're alone, it's that now you have liberty to improvise in the direction of beauty and meaning and you have time to stop in front of that golden framed picture and you have time to take it in. So if you have enough space in your personal life, you will end up moving into activities that I call white space adjacent You'll watch the cardinals, you'll take out your watercolors that have been in the back of the closet, you'll pick up fiction, "Mm, yummy fiction, Mm -hmm. we don't do enough fiction, and you'll maybe cook something that is not for dinner, but just for fun. And you'll get into these recreational grooves that elude you if busyness is too present. And you'll also be more present for the people that you love, that you see in your life. I, the, one of the greatest parenting tips I can ever give someone, something we've been doing for years and years, is teach your children to say, I would like full attention. Mm. Because in our busyness, we don't give it. We we fake it. We're good at faking it. Hi, honey, I'm I'm actually doing 17 things in my mind, <laughs> but I'm staring at you like I'm really present, but I'm not. That cue of I would like full attention, you could teach adults to say it too, Means you drop everything, no spatula in your hand, no AirPods in your ears. Everything goes down, and you turn your shoulders toward the person, and you say hi. Mm. And oh my god, it feels so good because that that intimacy. I that crave maybe, that. You it's know, so rare, I, right? It's so. I rare. know.
0: I mean, we just have two people living in this house now. We're empty nesters, but often my wife has her AirPods in, and I have mine in, and I'm like, okay, I got to pop these out and just be fully present. It's such a good. Reminder. Anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered? This has been super helpful.
1: I think I might just double down on a, this concept of eradicating the shame of rest. I think mm-hmm. that good leaders right now are often giving their teams a wellness day because they're so fried. But that is, it's good. It's well-intentioned. It's very important. It shows love. But it's also kind of like having a starving person and giving them a meal once a quarter, and hoping that that sates them. Yeah. And I just want to say to everyone who does have control of, of a group, no matter how small, that rest must be laced into the daily experience. Mm-hmm. And it must be shame-free. I love that you said you take a nap. I wish I could do a whole book. On, well, there's a lot of books on it. But I like to talk about sleep, and I kind of mm-hmm. don't do it as much as I should because I'm, I'm it doesn't really feel like my expertise, but when I was writing the book, I would write, 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 right, and then just fall asleep because okay. I would spend so much. And then you wake up and you got that little window of post wake up time, and you always get a great idea. So this shame of rest needs to go, and the pride of self care needs to replace it. And I, maybe I'll just double down on that before we I conclude. love that.
0: Self-care is not self-indulgence. And that's what mm. leaders have to remember. And, mm. you know, I, I felt the stigma around naps. Probably about a decade ago, I started talking about them personally. When I have an assistant, she started working with me maybe 14, 15 years ago. And I remember uh, I've always been a napper because I get tired in the afternoon, late afternoon. Someone was coming up to see me. I had an upper floor office. And it was like her first week on the job. And they're like, can I meet with Carrie? And she's like, I'm sorry, he's taking a nap. And I said, listen, you can never say that again, okay? (laughs) Like These people give to our church. You can't tell them I'm giving a nap. And then, you know, I just decided, you know what, enough with that. I'm not going to sleep when I have a meeting, but I'm just going to be public about it. So I would encourage any non-nappers to consider napping and just throw in that. The book is fantastic. It's called A Minute to Think. It's a beautiful book, great endorsements from Seth Godin, Angela Aarons, Daniel Pink, Cal Newport, Patrick Lencioni, and the subtitle is Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. Juliet, where can people um, find out more about you? Of course, the book's widely available now, um, but anything yes. you want to tell our readers, place they can go to to discover more.
1: Yes, we, uh, we're at julietfunt.com. But even if you don't, I hope you buy it. But even if you don't, you can also go to the website and take the busyness test, which will awesome. tell you personally exactly where you are on the gradation of busyness. And we'll start to give you some tips in your results about how to reclaim creativity and find more time to think.
0: That sounds fantastic. Juliet. thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Well, a lot of great advice in there for Juliet. She's got a great book too. Obviously, A Minute to Think. Very, very helpful book. And um, yeah, if you want more, you can get it at the show notes. You can go to com slash episode 446. And I'll be doing an Ask Me Anything About Productivity, coaching Karen from Australia, who has got a question about what do you do when you feel like you have to do everything? A lot of leaders find themselves there. Actually, I would say the majority of leaders find themselves there. And so we'll tackle that. But first, I want to tell you about the next episode. We have the one and only Charles Duhigg, best known for The Power of Habit, which came out almost a decade ago. And well, here's an excerpt from that conversation. The killer productivity app has always been thinking more deeply, right? Ooh. Finding the time and finding these ha- these mental habits, what, what researchers refer to as cognitive routines that force you to think more deeply about the choices you're making, because most of us want to go on autopilot, right? We want to come up with a to-do list and then we wake up and we just do what's at the top of the to-do list or we find the, the easiest thing to do so we can cross it off. But the problem is that like, there is nothing more wasteful than optimizing what never should have been done in the first place. How do we stop and think more deeply about what we ought to be doing rather than just what's at the top of the to-do list? That's next time on the podcast. Also, had a great chat with Mike Todd recently. Jacqueline Novogratz is coming up. Kara Powell is back. The guys from the Art of Charm podcast are coming up. Dave Hollis, Ken Coleman, Erwin McManus, and so many more this season. And then uh, we're already working on our 2022 lineup. If there's a guest you would like us to interview, give me a shout out. Just uh, shout out on social or uh, send me a note at kerry carrie at com. So thank you to our partners, Promedia Fire. They've got this awesome two weeks of live training that you can get in on for free by going to socialmediachallenge.com. Belay's got five blind spots that steal your attention. You can get that document for free by texting my name, Carrie C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. And now it's time to coach Karen. Here is Karen's question.
2: Hi, Carrie. Firstly, I love your show. My husband and I own a small IT company in Australia. We have been uh, running for over 20 years and fluctuate between 10 and 20 staff. We have uh, technical backgrounds, so it has been a challenge for us to to take on and learn the ropes of running a business. My challenge is is I wear many, many hats. In one day, um, I'll manage the processes of project management. Um, I run and manage marketing right down to helping create the assets I'm involved in sales and the finances. I also manage all the HR activities. We uh, If we're short on staff, I'll, I'll actually fulfill technical um, consulting. Uh, I also help with the compliance of processes and product development and business development. I drive the strategy meetings and overall welfare of all the staff. And one day I flip between so many roles and activities. My email is neglected, my to-do list is ridiculous, and I'm often struggling to complete a task. I'm sure I'm not the only one in this boat where we have to manage a lot of different things. There is no one to delegate to. How do you keep sane?
0: Karen, uh, you are not alone. Thank you so much for your question. And a shout out to all of our Australia friends. Uh, There are many of you who listen to this podcast. Uh, Yeah, you find yourself in a situation that so many leaders find themselves in, and I found myself in. So I want to go back to a couple of things you said. Uh, Number one, you said, that there is no one to delegate to yet. You also said at the beginning of your question that you have 10 to 20 staff. Uh, It fluctuates depending on the season and workload, but that's really interesting. So we have led very similar sized organizations. That's about the size of our team when I led the church. And uh, although we're a little bit smaller right now with my communications company, there's about eight of us when we're fully staffed. So uh, I am familiar with that kind of environment. And yet I'm also familiar with the tension to always feel like you have to do everything. So here's what I would say. And I outline this in At Your Best, but I want to lift a few principles from my new book to share with you that I hope can help. First of all, one of the things that allowed me to get out of that trap of busyness and the stress spiral of feeling like you have to be everywhere and the list that you share is impressive. That is a lot of responsibility you feel. And as an owner, as a founder, you're always going to feel that. But what I realized as I moved into my 40s is I'm not actually good at as many things as I thought. In fact, I'm not very good at HR. You mentioned HR. Uh, I'm not very good at the details. I'm not very good at finance. I'm good at financial health to make sure that we're healthy. But in terms of inputting things into spreadsheets, not my thing. I'm actually not very good at project management. I'm really a visionary. And so in At Your Best, I've got this matrix that you can look at. And it basically says, what is my gifting? What is my passion? And where does it have impact? That as an owner, as a founder is where, and actually as an employee, that is where your entire team should be spending most of their time. So I'm going to assume because you've got staff that you can delegate to some of those staff. And that's what I've had to do. I don't handle HR. In fact, we're hiring as I record this episode. I don't know who the candidates are. Uh, I've entrusted that to my team. We've got a couple of people who are leading that charge. I really trust them. I'm going to swing around at the end of the process And I'll probably be in on one of the interviews. And then we have a clinical psychologist who's helped us with our latest rounds of hiring. And he is going to be in on some of those rounds as well. So that's something I've delegated. Um, What am I gifted at? So I am gifted at communication. That's what I do best. I can facilitate conversations. I can write books. And uh, that's really what I'm best at. I actually really enjoy it. That's my passion. And when I do those things well, it has a lot of impact. That was true in the church. That's also true in this company that I'm leading these days. So my question for you, Karen, would be, what are you naturally gifted at? Is it HR? Is it vision? Is it the technical aspect of diving into the weeds? Is it uh, orchestrating a team? Is it being able to make new sales with new clients in your firm? Like, what is it that you are best at? That is your superpower. And if you're not sure, ask other people around you. And then go back and look at it. Okay, when our company was at its best, what were we doing? What was I doing? You have to ask yourself that question. then you think about what would you enjoy getting up doing? Uh, It's interesting. I wish I knew this when I wrote at your best, but you know, publication deadlines and everything. Uh, Marcus Buckingham said that if you can spend at something like 20 or 30% of your job doing something you really love, that all of your complaints about the job go away. So we have this idea in our head that, uh, you know, you have to love 100% of what you do. Well, that's not true. That's just never going to happen. Not on this side of eternity, right? So I don't love everything I have to do, but I love most of the things I have to do. And if you can operate in your area of passion, that thing that you really are like, wow, how am I even being paid to do this? 20 to 30% of your time, you're going to have a much better job. And then I think you can actually raise that level. To be honest with you, I spend about 70% of my time, 80% of my time, doing the things I love the most and I'm most naturally gifted at, and the third part of that Venn diagram that have the greatest impact. In other words, when you do these things, uh, they have the biggest impact. So Karen, I have never run an IT company. You know your field best, but I'm going to give you five things that when I do them well, and this has been true for decades now, for over 25 years in leadership, it moves the needle in the kinds of things I do. It was true when I led a church full-time. It's true now that I'm leading this company. Number one, casting crystal clear vision. I am a visionary and when I do that well and it's crystal clear and the team understands it, everything goes better. Number two, creating and delivering great content. So I've already hinted at that, but when I'm writing well, when I'm doing good interviews, guess what? We move the mission forward. Number three, crafting a healthy organizational culture. I have to make sure my team is healthy. They are getting along. We don't have any gossip. We don't have conflict behind the scenes. There's no meetings after the meetings. When we're aligned organizationally, and that's true at the board level, that's true at the staff level. Uh, if you're healthy at the top, you're going to be healthy at the bottom. So I would focus on that. That's worth my time. And I do it when I'm you know, operating well. I do it well. Number four, keeping our top staff and clients aligned and relationally connected so that there's harmony there. So the culture is strong. There's harmony among people. And then number five, ensuring we have the financial resources we need for our mission. Obviously, if you don't, you go bankrupt. So I've got to make sure that our cash flow is healthy, that we have the reserves that we need, et cetera, et cetera. When I do those five things, crystal clear vision, great content, healthy culture, uh, relational alignment, and financial resources, everything thrives. So what I would do is try to figure out what the three to five things that you can focus on uniquely are, and then give the rest to the team. And you might be saying, well, we don't have anybody who could do HR, well, at that point, if you've got 10 to 20 staff, you need to be thinking, well, who can we bring in part-time to help with that? Or somebody who could handle uh, some of the administration or someone who could handle that long list of things that you are talking about. You start focusing on your sweet spot. You're going to really, really start enjoying your job a lot more. And you'll probably make progress. Your profits will probably increase. Your uh, company will grow. And by the way, if you want more on that, I lifted that list from page 119 in my new book, At Your Best. You can get that in your hands now, friends. So uh, you can get that anywhere books are available. And if you've got a question about productivity, we're going to do this for a little bit longer. I've got some questions I haven't gotten to yet. You can leave yours by going to com slash podcast. Click on the little icon and uh, leave me a voicemail. And maybe you will hear your voice and your question answered here on the program. Thanks again for listening. If you're new, make sure you subscribe, maybe share about this episode on social media if it spoke to you. And thank you for making Book Launch so incredible. I'm so excited, so blessed to be alongside you. And uh, I'm so grateful we get to do this together. You guys truly are the best. And uh, well, I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast.